you're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or to check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today's episode is the latest in a series of episodes about urban space in the Ottoman Empire. I invite you all to check out uh, the ongoing series on our webpage, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. And today's discussion will center on uh, the history of hammams or bathhouses in Ottoman Istanbul. Uh, For our international audiences, uh, bathhouses are familiar as a space of leisure, often associated with uh, the Ottoman Empire and the Islamic world. Uh, But as we'll be talking about today, in addition to providing uh, a space of leisure, hammams also uh, had an important social and indeed socioeconomic function in uh, Ottoman cities. Our guest today is Dr. Nina Ergin, an associate professor in the Department of Archaeology and History of Art at Coach University. She is an Islamic art historian who's written on an array of topics, and today we'll be discussing her research on uh, hammams in Istanbul, and in particular, Mm -hmm. some attempts to map hammams onto the the urban landscape of Ottoman Istanbul and see what these maps can tell us about the history of these spaces. So, Nina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So before we get into this uh, particular piece of research, which deals, which deals with the, the space of, of hammams during the 18th century in Istanbul, could you speak more broadly about the various uh, socioeconomic facets of hammams as institutions and as spaces in Ottoman cities? Certainly. Um, in fact, you know, hammams beyond the socioeconomic had a lot of other functions too, but let's go one by one. I mean, sure. they had a social dimension. Um, because they were places of leisure and of gathering. They had an economic dimension because they provided business opportunities, uh, both for private persons and for endowments, uh, sponsoring uh, charitable buildings, mosque complexes, and so forth. They also had religious dimensions uh, because, of course, um, there are the canonical requirements of cleanliness and purification before Mm -hmm. praying. And they... uh, had functions of public hygiene as well, because we know that, uh, for example, cooks working in uh, the kitchens of mosque complexes sometimes uh, were required to go wash there before they would go to work and touch large quantities of food. And then they also had a medical role. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in, in Arabic, there is uh, a proverb that calls the hammams uh, the silent doctor, because you go there when you have any yeah. kind of aches or ailments, if you feel coming down with the flu, etc., that would be the place to go. Yeah, and this was much to the chagrin of doctors in the, I guess, late 19th century who found that hammams actually, for certain diseases in particular, maybe weren't so salubrious uh, Certainly, I've encountered this in my research on malaria that the first thing they warn people is don't go to hammam and the second is don't drink alcohol because that's <laughs> apparently what people were doing to uh, take care yes, of it. Yes, <laughs> that can happen. Um, and then of course, given that Ottoman medicine was based on sort of Galenic humoralism, there were certain diseases for which hammams were recommended when you had sort of an excess of dry humors mm-hmm. and cold humors. But of course, it was not advisable if you had an excess of wet humor, for example. Ah, well, there you yeah. go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess in addition to all those, uh, we, we should mention uh, the maybe political space of the hammam is a, a homosocial space, is a space where people could meet and 
discuss? Absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, if generally, people would not go to the hammam on their own. They would go together with friends. Um, women in general would go in large groups with a retinue, with their slave girls. Mm -hmm. They would spend the entire day there. That was one place where they could uh, comfortably network, meet friends, meet new people, um, sort of uh, see whether there would be someone available among the girls in the neighborhood right. who would make a good bride for their sons, etc., etc. Um, and when you say political dimension, we should also think of Hammam sort of uh, as an institution in urban space and as an urban amenity mm -hmm. that said something about um, sort of the charity and the, the, the care that the ruler took of the well-being of his subjects. I mean, it was an urban amenity that just needed to be there, just like actually, for example, in any imperial Roman city. Um, to ensure the good status of a city. And so when you say amenity, hammams are most often, I guess, maintained and sponsored by the state or by uh, local patrons? Like, well, what is the typical structure, institutional structure of a hammam? Um, in Ottoman Istanbul, uh, sort of most of the uh, important hammams were part of a vakuf, of an endowment. Mm -hmm which means that they would be uh, built together with mosque complexes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, endowments always had uh, the, the, the side where uh, sort of the, f the financial uh, part where money would be spent, like in the mosque itself, in the soup kitchen, in the hospital, in the madrasa for the scholarship stipends for the students. And then that money had to come from somewhere. Where, well, where did it come from? Um, usually... Endowments had a quite diverse portfolio, so to speak. They would have um, taxes from rural areas, but then also real estate in, in the city. Um, mm -hmm. Rental incomes from shops, hammams, other places as well. Um, but hammams were very important, and we know also from the Muhasebe Defteller, from the accounting registers that are still preserved today in the archives, how much these hammams actually brought in terms of income to an endowment. Mm -hmm. And and so hammams are really a fix fixture of Ottoman cities, particular of, of Istanbul. And, and I guess from what you're saying, these are public institutions that are not just leisure spaces of the elite, but rather there's all sorts of different hammams used by everybody in the city, probably different hammams for different classes, but... Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, everybody should have had access to a hammam yeah. uh, as sort of a public Just like amenity. Just a mosque or any other exactly. thing. Um, you know, there, there are different opinions about how accessible hammams were for different classes. Okay. Obviously, if a pasha or someone of that sort visited a hammam, he may not necessarily have wanted to mingle with everyone else. Yeah. And so while we don't necessarily have sources for the earlier centuries, um, there are interviews that were done sort of in the very early 20th century with people who have worked in who had worked in hammams, you know, many decades, who talk about how a pasha would come and actually rent the entire hammam together with his retinue. Um, and then we also have stories from women's hammams where, you know, uh, a group of women who was sort of socially uh, of higher status would rent a halvet, one of the corner rooms, to themselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is a certain amount of mingling, probably, but still sure. people were very conscious of their of their status within the hammam. Sure. 
that that's probably a useful piece of information even for maybe tourists who are visiting Istanbul today. Not all the hammams are the ones they want to visit. No. And you can find that out the hard way. Exactly, yes. <laughs> so I guess for, for the rest of our discussion, maybe we can zoom in a little closer and look at the social space of the hammam, and particularly uh, hammams in the, in the political context you've looked at for the, for the mid-18th century. I mean, it's interesting to note that one of these great revolts in the history of the Ottoman Empire, the Patrona Halia revolt, mm-hmm. which you talk about in your article that we'll be referring to here, uh, centered very much around the space of the bathhouse, around the hammams. Would you open that up a little bit for us? Yes, certainly. Um, the hammams, I mean, were, were sort of gathering spaces that were accessible to most everybody. Were you were in an atmosphere that was really conducive to quite intimate sharing of your life story, your circumstances, mm-hmm. and so forth. And so probably this would also be a place where people would complain about their fate and, you know, how things were going badly, etc., etc. And uh, it was a place where you could also sort of network quite easily. Um, and it was probably also... A, sort of the networking that his employment in a hammam allowed him that made Patrona Halil the, the linchpin of right. this rebellion. He himself was an employee exactly. of a hammam. He was an Albanian who worked as telak, as bathhouse attendant in the Bayezid hammam. So very centrally located. And um, because uh, at that point, a very large percentage of the bathhouse employees in Istanbul were Albanians like himself, he also had uh, likely a very large network of ethnic sol- solid based on ethnic solidarity. And so he could mobilize a large number of people. And then um, I'm sure that there would also be very, very close ties and connections between spaces like hammams, coffee houses and barbershops, of which there were also a great many um, mm-hmm. in Istanbul, more than was strictly needed, uh, as, as Cengiz Kuller has shown in his research. So um, because hammam customers, you know, they would hire a barber maybe, uh, or barbers would work in hammams. Um, hammam uh, services may also include coffee that would be brought from a coffee shop and so forth. And so you have these interlinked public services yeah. um, uh, centered around small shops and so forth. And I'm sure rumors could spread extremely fast um, through through these networks. Well, yeah. Could you explain a little bit about the specifics of the revolt? It's a very mm-hmm. famous event, yeah. but maybe mm-hmm. some people won't be Certainly. familiar with it. Like, yeah. how does it center on the hammam like this? How does that work in practice? Well, uh, the, the time was sort of generally not a very good one for the guilds in mm-hmm. Istanbul. Um, First of all, there were very high taxes to finance uh, wars with the uh, Safavids. At the same time, there, there seemed to have been sort of like maybe some breakdowns with regulations of guilds and, and an influx of migrants into the city mm-hmm. um, that made it very difficult to keep up the guild structure. So there was sort of a lot of simmering social discontent and this at is that point. this is 1730 if uh, i'm not mistaken yeah the, the revolt itself is in 1730 but so it's so right for, right before the that. tulip period exactly refers usually and so it probably did not help that uh you know we know the so-called tulip period is sort of one of pomp and splendor and yeah. excess among the elite if 
you know, the, this type of behavior um, sort of uh, was gossiped about among the guildsmen as well. You know, they're taxing yeah. us, but at the same time, they're having their tulip viewing parties uh, on the Bosphorus and so forth. So um, that that was sort of the, the underlying story um, of the revolt. Um, and then Patrona Halil, at this specific point, was able to mobilize a large number of people, probably through his social, I mean, obviously through his social networks, and the rebels marched onto the palace and deposed the sultan, which was sort of a very singular instance right. in Ottoman history. Well, and so, I mean, so Patrona Halil has this whole network of bathhouse boys, who I guess are urban migrants, working class people, we yes. could say. But obviously to depose the sultan, you need a little bit more than just some bath attendants, right? So how, was the bathhouse actually serving as a place where the sort of maybe notables or, or people who could be involved in such a revolt, Janissaries, I don't know, maybe you could explain, would meet with these uh, somewhat uh, disgruntled working class uh, migrants? Um, yes, I mean, the, the hammams uh, would be frequented by most of these people. So I'm sure, you know, Patrona Halil himself had like a large customer base or think of, yeah. I mean, just alone in the Bayezid hammam, probably around 40 people worked there which is a large number. And let, let's say these 40 people each know another 40 people who then mm -hmm. also know another 40 people. Um, and that's not even considering, you know, neighboring hammams or the coffee shops or the barber shops with which this, this hammam is linked. So you can really contact a large number of guildsmen, menial laborers, um, and, you know, people of, 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 of that kind of class uh, very quickly through sort of this network that centers around the hammam. Right. So Patrona Halila is someone who's sitting at the, the I guess, the center of a, a very important social network that brings together different elements of society, was poised to become a, a leading figure in this revolt Absolutely. we just described. Yes. Uh -huh. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here talking with Nina Aragin about her research on uh, hammams in Ottoman Istanbul and, a, and specifically hammams during the, the mid-18th century following uh, the revolt of Patrona Halil, which led to the uh, brief deposition of the Ottoman Sultan and, of course, afterwards made hammams an even increasingly important uh, object of scrutiny for the state, being that Hammams could be a space in which re revolts could be born. It's only natural that uh, the government might look to um, uh, monitor activities and, and workers in these spaces, uh, which which brings us to really the heart of, of your research that we're talking about today. Uh, so you've sort of done a, a close analysis of an inspection register from the Hammams of Istanbul that occurred at, at, at mid-18th century uh, and extracted a lot of information that tells us exactly who was working in hammams, where they came from, where they lived, uh, and many other uh, facets of that question. And actually, one of the interesting uh, aspects of your research that I liked was that you used, uh, you made a little database and, and used GIS to map uh, the hammams of Istanbul. We'll talk about that in just a bit. But first, could you maybe introduce us this inspection and, and you know, the, the types of very specific pieces of information that the, the government was interested in when they undertook these inspections of the hammams in Istanbul? 
Um, well, uh, it's quite obvious that the government would be uh, somewhat worried of so many Albanians working in uh, in the city after um, Patrona Halil had proved so dangerous. Yeah. So um, what the, the city administration really tried to do, very obviously, was to discriminate against Albanians through various metho methods to make sure that... Uh, they would be kept out of certain professions, and instead, you know, other mm -hmm. um, um, people from from other Anatolian provinces, for example, would be substituted for them. So, um, one thing that they did is uh, that they um, instituted a regulation where they would not allow Albanians to leave the city and then come back to the same job. Um, so they were not allowed to, for example, go and remit the earnings that they had made as labor migrants mm -hmm. back to their family. They had to stay in Istanbul. Um, so, I mean, if you want to compare that to what happens with migrant workers, like yeah. let's say in Germany, if you cannot go back to your family once a year and remit your earnings to them, then there is no point in actually <laughs> migrating right. and working there. Um so that uh, was one way by which they tried to um, reduce the number of Albanians. And then, of course, they tried to monitor very, very carefully who these Albanians were and uh, how many. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one way uh, of doing that was through drawing up inspection registers. And you see always uh, a peak in the creation of these types of inspection registers whenever something happens that threatens the safety of, of the sultan, of the dynasty. Right. Um, so uh, this inspection register that I've looked at was uh, written in 1752, but we have some later ones as well. Um, but that specific one actually records a total of 2,400 hammam workers categorized into both bath attendants and bath servants. Um, they, they, they are recorded by name by uh, the province of origin mm -hmm. and with sort of a one or two word description of their physical appearance to make them actually recognizable and yeah. monitorable. <laughs> and 2,400 is a lot of workers in one industry in, in, in Ottoman Istanbul at this time. How many hammams are we talking about under this inspection? Um, we are talking about 177 hammams uh, and of these about 177. 15 were inside the city walls and mm -hmm. the rest were outside. The historical peninsula, exactly. as we know it, yeah. Um, the rest were outside in Eyüp, uh, in, yeah. in Galata, in Üsküdar, okay. along the shores of the Bosphorus. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you, you mentioned uh, that many of these workers were migrant laborers from, I guess, Albania or other parts of the Balkans. How, what was the demographic like there? Um, we, we can give quite exact figures for okay. that based on this one uh, inspection register. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's just a snapshot from 1752. But people from Istanbul itself were really in a very tiny minority, 7%. So oh, this was wow. not a job that uh, natives of, Istanbul's, of Istanbul would have aspired to. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of a low-status, menial job. Um, it was something that you did maybe as a young man to... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, save up some earnings. Uh, you There was very little uh, social advancement that you could gain through a job like that. So it was uh, mostly people from Anatolia, and the largest percentage 
was, of course, from Rumelia, from the Balkans, uh, 71%. Wow. So, Nina, you're saying that uh, lots of these uh, workers in the hammams are coming from the Balkans. Um, of course, there's an implicit class element there, but if, if with so many people coming from one region, is there a sort of chain migration taking place where one person comes to the city, then their relatives come, sort of this dynamic going on, or is it more diffuse? Um, it certainly looks like that, um, because uh, we have, you know, uh, certain cities or towns or provinces on the Balkans yeah. that are represented very strongly among the laborers in one hammam, for mm -hmm. example. Um, and there is one interesting example that actually points to uh, the Anatolian town, a province of Chemishkizek, okay. where you have two hammams very close by to each other uh, that have deluxe from Chemishkizek, um, but they don't appear anywhere else in the city. Mm -hmm. So it almost looks as if you know there is a chain migration on a very minuscule scale from that place to these two hammams within the same neighborhood in Istanbul. And probably it started first with the one hammam and when all the spots filled up there, it sort of bubbled over to the next hammam, so mm -hmm. to speak. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, so rather than being a specialty of the Balkans per se, hammam work is essentially something that arises out of a mixture of a class dynamic that is linked to these, uh, you know, kinship networks uh, and, and migration occurring at the, t at the time. Certainly. Um, I mean, the Hammam workers almost exclusively come from provinces that are very poor, mm -hmm. that don't have a lot of resources to support, for example, the demographic increase. Like mountain, mountainous mountain regions. regions mm -hmm. where you, you know, have pastoralism and so forth. And, and there were places, especially sort of in, in, in southwestern Macedonia, in, in Albania, yeah. um, where there were very few opportunities for young men to actually make their living. And then it became almost sort of like a, a, a expected, I guess, of them to go and try their luck as hammam workers in Istanbul. And what was it like to work in a hammam in Istanbul as a, as a young man? presumably teenage boy coming to the city. Yeah, so most of, of the hammam workers were young. Uh, we know that also from the uh, physical description that mm -hmm. is contained in the inspection register, which uh, points to facial hair. Mm -hmm. hair. Okay. They always uh, say either, you know, a boy without a beard or a boy yeah. with a slight beard, or if it was an, a mature adult, then it, he had a beard <laughs> um, or a mustache. That's always indicated. Yeah. So, but the a large portion, more than half, were quite young. They were teenagers. Okay. Um, probably this would have been their first job um, away from, from home. Um, and uh, it, it could not have been, you know, a very easy task because it's physically a very demanding job. Um, mm -hmm. There is very little security. Um, we don't know exactly what the dynamics of, of payment were, but in some cases, payment was probably only through tips. Oh. So. Um, Which, of course, makes a really bad, I mean, a really problematic labor dynamic between the, the, the customer and these young guys. Yeah. So, I mean, certainly there must have been a lot of exploitation going mm -hmm. on, whether, you know, labor exploitation, but probably also sexual exploitation and so forth. Um, 
So it could not have been a very pleasant environment uh, to work in, in in most instances. So, I mean, it gives us some further insight into how the hammam could uh, serve as a locus uh, for discontent or, or a place where discontent could be crystallized uh, among broad swath of the population. Okay, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton, once again, talking with Professor Nina Aragon about her research on Ottoman hammams. We want to remind you that on our website, we have additional materials associated with this episode and our other episodes, a bibliography, including, uh, you know, citation of, 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 of Nina's articles uh, and uh, images as well. And in fact, uh, we have uh, on our website images uh, of a map from uh, Nina's own research in which she tried in various ways to visualize certain aspects of the hammams of Ottoman Istanbul and really give a very clear uh, geographical representation of uh, where these spaces were in relationship to other spaces and how they were spread throughout the city. Um, of course, your, your inspection notebook, uh, Nina, really allowed you to do such a, a detailed uh, thing, really a special thing. But um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your you know, sort of your mapping experience and your mapping methods, because I know that you used uh, GIS, uh, GIS or Geographic Information Systems, a method of essentially database-based mapping that is increasingly used in the in the humanities, but maybe not so much among Ottoman historians. So could you talk a little bit about uh, that mapping and maybe some of the conclusions you were able to draw using those maps that otherwise might have been very elusive? Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, the, uh, the, the source itself, the inspection registers, lends itself so well to um, turning it into um, sort of spatial data because, first of all, you have very specific hammams in specific locations, and then underneath you have all of this numerical data, which is almost like the Ottoman version of an Excel file. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I myself am not particularly... Um, skilled when it comes to these kinds of, of, of uh, digital uh, technologies. So I want to also acknowledge here the immense help uh, of Yasemin Özaslan, who is a doctoral uh, student in our program in archaeology. And, well, archaeologists in general are much further ahead of sure. Ottoman historians in, in using these, these kinds of uh, technologies for mapping and what have you. So um, it was with her uh, help that we managed to turn uh, the data extracted from the, um, the register into so-called shape files that could then be connected to specific dots on the map. And uh, well, based on that then, uh, one can really understand, for example, how um, migrant workers from different provinces were distributed in throughout the city whether you know there were was a concentration of mm-hmm. anatolian migrant workers among the hammams in one neighborhood versus another neighborhood um, you can also see sort of the age distribution are there hammams that uh, have a lot of young telaks is that concentrated a phenomenon in one uh, area? I mean yes um it, it happens um so 
interestingly, in, in the Tophane area, which was, of course, a place of not very good repute, okay. you have a number of hammams where you have the majority of very young tilas. Ah, okay. But you have to be careful not to jump to any conclusions sure. here because it's it's also the size of the hammams that, that matter. If you have, it's different if you have a hammam with five and all of them are young versus you have a hammam with 50 and five of them are young. So one has to constantly go back and forth mm -hmm. between the map uh, and and sort of the numerical data. Um, there is, of course, always sort of this this issue with qualitative research versus yeah. quantitative research. But you were able to pinpoint where the largest hammams were as well because you had lists of the, the workers. Exactly. So the largest hammams are um, mostly concentrated uh, in commercial areas. Mm -hmm. um, uh, today's Tachtakale neighborhood, so um, from the Golden Horn uh, up towards the hill, uh, towards the Divanyol, the main axis okay. crossing the um, uh, historical peninsula. Uh, so th this is a commercial area still today. Um, and the hammams there had up to 59 employees, which is an enormous number of employees for any kind of Ottoman business enterprise yeah. because uh, it w really wasn't very common to have as much as 50 employees even in factories that emerged um, in the 19th century wow. or the early 20th century and here we're only talking about you know the the male employees of the hammam but then there uh, were also female employees in some cases in the women's section. Mm -hmm. And then you also have to think that there would have been a lot of um, shops and businesses related to hammams emerging in, in that space, um, mm -hmm. whether that's sort of a coffee shop or a tea shop or uh, sellers of towels, sellers of clogs and so forth. Did, so did the inspection keep track of the female workers in the same way as the men or was it? skewed in that regard um the the administration was not interested at all in the okay. women <laughs> all right <laughs> they so were only interested in the so-called troublemaking target, Albanians. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly that's what i was suspecting uh, uh can we presume that uh hammam workers based on you know you said there's 50 employees mm -hmm. might we presume that they're only working part-time and working somewhere else in another profession in the city supplementing income i mean or w were these buildings large enough that we could imagine that many people? Some of the buildings are large enough. Because some survive. We have the hammam still today. Yes. Uh -huh. Some of them are quite large enough so that you could imagine, you know, that on a daily basis mm -hmm. there would have been a rotation of maybe 40 or so in and out. Okay. Um, and you also have to consider what th this is physically very demanding labor. Mm -hmm. I mean, you cannot have one delac massaging like 15 customers in one day. Um, that probably <laughs> mm -hmm. would be impossible. Sure. So you need to have people on rotation. Um, and for that reason, it's quite possible that they may also have had some kind of a side business. Maybe um, in a bakery. <laughs> <laughs> possible. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Unfortunately, we don't yeah. have any sources that uh, that indicate that. But of course, we can always you know, use our so-called historical imagination. Right. Um, and I mean, it's important to remember with our with our mapping projects that you also have to cons consult the the qualitative sources a little bit to see how they match up with the narrative accounts and and whatnot. And so, for the listeners who want to see all these maps and visualizations and how Nina uses 
them in her article, you, you can check out the, the book chapter in uh, a book entitled Bread from the Lion's Mouth. It's out. It's edited by Soraya Faroki and released through Bergan Books. You can find the citation on our website. Uh, we, have, we do have one image on our website of uh, a map that really doesn't have a lot of dots on it, but says something interesting. Yes. Um, so, as I said, most of the um, migrant workers came from the Balkans. They came from Rumelia. But there is sort of an anomaly here. Um, there are a few hammams that seem to have like a mini migration network within the city mm -hmm. where you find um, employees from Üsküdar. Now, it, of course, it makes good sense that you find like hammams in Üsküdar having employees from Üsküdar because these were village-like settlements and people would generally work where they lived. But then you have, for example, in Fatih, one hammam where you have a, sort of an accumulation of migrant mm -hmm. workers from Üsküdar, if you can call them migrant workers. Okay. Um, so it seems that even within the city, it was possible for these types of networks to form so that you could get like mini chain migrations um, over not so large distances as well. And, and so, you know, for a, a lot of people work on this time period, I mean, it's, it would be interesting to imagine putting together different data from uh, different projects on the city of Istanbul uh, to see how these networks are embedded in certain geographies of the city and whatnot. I mean, there, there could, there's fascinating collaborative work to be done there, I think. Um, some of that is already happening. Mm -hmm. uh, Cengiz Kulla and Betul Basharan are working um, on, on uh, sort of the 18th century and the labor force, particularly of Istanbul. Um, but it would be wonderful if we could get started on a database sure. that, uh, you know, collects all of this information, both in Excel sheets as well as in maps that are, that are then based on, on, on these data. <laughs> Well, that's a good plug for uh, digital history and digital humanities and all the collaboration that can come out of it. And hopefully we'll be seeing more of that from yourself and, and our many colleagues in the field of Ottoman history uh, in the coming years. I hope so, too. Well, Nina, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast uh, and sharing some of your research with me today. I enjoyed uh, this sort of micro history view of the hammam in Ottoman Istanbul, which really gives a, a new perspective uh, on this space as something more than just, as I said, a space of leisure, but rather a very important social institution that can be studied from a variety of angles. Well, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to share my work with you. <laughs> Now, for those who enjoyed this conversation and want to learn more about the topic, we have a short bibliography on our website that Nina's provided some of her uh, own publications as well as other relevant uh, readings. Uh, that's also a space where you can leave your comments and questions and get in touch with our Facebook group, now over 20,000 fans following Ottoman History Podcast uh, and its uh, partnered sites. That's also where you can get the latest updates on our new episodes and other content. And stay abreast of our ongoing series on urban space in the Ottoman Empire, a popular and really exciting and dynamic uh, field of study. That's all for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Join us next time. And until then, take care.